Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I'll be your host for this episode. I've approached the last few cases a little differently. Sometimes a case presents itself as more story than crime scene breakdown. Other times there's more stuff to talk about in terms of the crime scene and the story. So I hope everybody's okay with the fact that I kind of switch around my approach based on the case itself and this case today is going to be more of a crime scene focused case but with that being said if you would like to get updates about what the podcast is up to please like and follow the true blue crime productions facebook page more information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com and if you would like to email the host directly my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com Finally, if you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. Also, for no cost, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to. It definitely helps build up listenership and get more people into the podcast. Now, without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. A bride's wedding day is supposed to be a happy occasion filled with love, laughter, and lifelong memories. But when a bride goes missing just five days before her wedding day, it can be a question of cold feet or even worse, foul play. On September 8, 2009, a doctoral student at the prestigious Yale University went missing in a case that caught fire in the media and captivated the nation. What happened to this young woman was so much promise and so much to look forward to. Now the woman that we're going to be talking about today is Annie Lee. Annie Lee was born on July 3rd, 1985 in San Jose, California. She was the daughter of a Vietnamese American family and was raised by her aunt and uncle. Annie was incredibly intelligent, graduating as the valedictorian of her high school class and was was voted most likely to be the next Einstein. In preparation for college, she she secured around $160,000 in scholarships via academic awards and set off for New York to study cell developmental biology and minor in medical anthropology. While studying at the University of Rochester, she met a man named Jonathan Wadowski. The two would fall in love, get engaged, and plan to marry on September 13, 2009. After completing her undergraduate degree, she was accepted into Yale to work on a doctorate in pharmacology. She had hoped to work on medicines to help treat diabetes and certain cancers. This work mainly revolved around tests conducted on mice in university labs. She was known for being an animal lover and having a smile that would light up the room. And everyone she talked to in the days before her disappearance said she was looking forward to her wedding and a married life with Jonathan. Now, obviously, we wouldn't be talking about Annie Lee if something hadn't happened. So here's the investigation. On the morning of September 8, 2009, which again is five days before her wedding day, Annie Lee left her apartment and took school transit to her office located in a building called Sterling Hall, which is on the Yale campus. Around 10 a.m., she left her office, leaving behind her purse, cell phone, credit cards, and cash for the short walk to the research labs at the Amistad Street building. Security cameras captured her entering the building just after 10 a.m. At 10.40 p.m. that evening, one of Lee's roommates contacted the police as Lee had not returned home around the 9 p.m. time that she said she would. While Lee was an adult, there are factors to consider that would make this suspicious and warrant an, an investigation. First off, Lee was extremely punctual and 
She also had access to a phone and cell phone to call if she was running behind and no call had been made. Secondly, her roommate had not received any calls or texts from Lee all day, and this was very unusual. So again, we've talked about this in the past in several of these cases. Uh, when somebody goes missing and they're an adult, there's nothing illegal about them going missing. And police, although most states, I believe, do require now police to do a missing persons report for any adult that's missing, it can be up to the police discretion on whether or not they enter that person into the national database for missing people. But at least a report is going to get filed. But if police see something that isn't adding up, this is behavior way outside the norm for this person. And and again, you're in this case, we're talking about a person who is extremely responsible, extremely intelligent, extremely dedicated to her studies. And from everything that her roommates and friends are saying, this is completely out of the norm. There's no history of mental illness. She's not on any medications for anything. So the police are going to launch a missing persons investigation that evening. First thing they're going to do is call Lee's fiance, Jonathan. He's still at the University of Rochester, so, so it makes sense that they're going to contact him first just in case she made the five and a half hour drive up there in some type of an emergency situation and maybe her phone died or something along those lines but first let's check in with the fiance he might know more jonathan tells the police he has not had contact with lee all day and in fact she was supposed to call him at 7 p.m that evening and she didn't call him he figured something just came up with her studies or her doctor at work and she was just she just lost track of time although he would also believe that wouldn't be like her but the last thing in his mind is that she had gone missing the the other reason that police are going to do this is because when somebody goes missing or is murdered one of the first people they're going to look at is a significant other uh, especially if there's potential for problems in the relationship like a recent breakup or somebody's cheating something along those lines so police are kind of killing two birds with one stone here by checking in with Jonathan to see if Lee is with him because if she is case solved and if she isn't what does Jonathan know well Jonathan has told them he talked to her at 8 a.m. that morning and she was supposed to call at 7 and he hasn't heard now I did look at a map and figure out the Google driving directions technically if Jonathan were to be involved he could have left Rochester New York at 8 a.m. after she left the apartment, her roommate saw her leaving the apartment, driven down there, met her somewhere during the day around 1.30 or 2 in the afternoon, something could have happened and he would have had enough time to then return back to Rochester, New York before the police uh, contact him. And I think this was around 11 o'clock that night. So while it is possible and only possible mainly because of the long time frame between anybody having contact with her at 8 a.m. and now it's almost 11 p.m. it's not likely and there was no indication of this and Lee likely would have told some of her friends that Jonathan was coming down to see her that day so there's no evidence at this point pointing towards Jonathan being involved but police have to check that box they've done that a, she's not with them. B, they don't believe that he's involved at this point. So now they're going to go to Lee's office. When they arrive there, they're going to find that she left behind 
her purse, cell phone, credit cards, and cash in her office. So this again is going to point towards the fact that she did not just run off on her own, which has been known to happen with brides and grooms before weddings where they get cold feet and just decide they're going to run off and escape all the stress of the wedding or or whatever it may be. So I guess police had to consider that as a potential that she just had a complete and utter mental breakdown and decided to just get space. But with them finding all of the things she would need if she was going to go on the run, her phone, credit cards, cash, purse, all that kind of stuff, now they're at a loss because she likely didn't leave the area. She wouldn't get far without those items. And she's not with the fiance and she's not with the roommates. So where is Annie Lee? The one other thing they are going to do, police are going to check local hospitals because that is always a possibility that, especially since she left her items behind in her office, that if she were to say, while walking from one building to the other, get hit by a car or any other way in which she could potentially end up being either dropped off or brought to a hospital. If she's in a coma or is unconscious, there's a, there's a small chance that she could just be sitting in a hospital room somewhere and nobody knows who she is. And, and at this point, she could be there and they could know who she is and hospitals are not required to notify the police that these that this person has arrived there's no way that they're going to know the police are even looking for her so that's kind of that last check in the box now i will say one other thing when i was a police officer i would look at at that point is arrest now nothing in lee's background leads me to believe she was arrested but there was a number of times where somebody would call the police department and i would take the call where their significant other their son their daughter whoever it may be didn't come home and they want to report him as a missing person. And this would be Sunday morning, Saturday morning, Monday morning, somewhere around there. And the first thing I do is hop on to the websites for the local jails. And most of the time I would find, especially if I asked that person if they had a history of arrest, whether it be with warrants, drunk driving, whatever it may be, a vast majority of the time I would find out that that person had been arrested and was sitting in jail somewhere. And again, The jails aren't going to know that we're looking for that person at the time they're booked into the jail. It's only afterwards that somebody's reporting them missing that police are now looking for this person. So nine times out of ten, I guess, when somebody's reported missing, a combination of finding them with significant others, friends, etc., a hospital or in prison, accounts for the location of most of those people. So police have checked all these locations didn't say that they checked jails, but I assume they probably did. And so now they're going to go to what's going to be a key piece of evidence in this case, and it's Lee's key card. So students and staff at the university are required to use these key cards, these electronic cards, to get into buildings. And this is easier than issuing keys. I used to work for a university uh, doing security for them. And this is back before electronic locks and that stuff. And I literally had to carry an old key lanyard with like 30, 40 different keys on it that would allow different access to different buildings. And as technology has advanced, and this was, that was back in the late 90s, now technology has advanced to the point that we can have these electronic key readers and they can be turned on and off to allow access for some people into some buildings or labs 
or not. I know with the police department, they were really useful because uh, as a crime scene technician, we needed to keep our crime lab secure, especially during a major case. And so to prevent anybody from being able to just walk into the room where evidence was laid out, that would then later have to be explained away in court as to why people had access to that room, we could change the locks or the, the electronic keypad to only allow certain people involved in that investigation into that room. And there was then a log of anybody going into the room that could be explained in court as to why that person was in there and what they were doing at that time. So same scenario here. We've got key readers in all of the buildings and all the rooms on the Yale campus. So police realize this is a potential gold mine for figuring out where Lee is. So they bring up her key card access logs and the only thing that this isn't going to show is who used the key card. We're going to know whose key card was used. That doesn't necessarily mean that that person is the person that scanned. But in the case of Lee, they're only going to find one scan, or her, sorry, they're going to find scans for her going into the building, that lab, a little after 10 a.m., and scanning into a room in the lab, and then no other scans are going to be made. However, now that they know a rough time frame in which Lee is in a certain part of the building, this is where they're going to start to look at anybody else who may have been a witness to what happened or had talked to Lee that day or anything along those lines. So they're going to run the same key card log check but look for other people's key cards that access that room and an employee named Raymond Clark came up on the list. Now police are going to track down Raymond Clark on September 10th, so this is two days after she went missing. In this time frame they've learned that he was a lab technician who took care of the animals and the animal cages in the rooms of the lab. Now he did state that he was at the building that day and saw Lee working in the room around 10.30 in the morning. He told police he left the room around noon for lunch and returned at 12.30. He said that shortly after he got back he witnessed Lee gather up her notebook and two bags of mouse food and leave the room around 12.45 hours. Clark also said a fire alarm cleared the building between 1 and 1.30. Police did notice a scratch on Clark's left bicep and he said he got it from one of his cats. The thing I should say about the key cards is it's a requirement to get into a room. There's no requirement to scan to get out of the room. So police can, can't verify Clark's story on Lee leaving because there's no requirement for her to scan on the way out of the room. When asked if Clark knew Lee, Clark stated that he knew, knew Lee as he had met her sometime after the beginning of 2009, but claimed they were not friends and did not hang out together outside of work. On the same day, September 10th, police meet with a student named Rachel Roth. She had found a box of these cleaning wipes called All Wipes on a steel push cart in room G13. The box appeared to have blood spatter on it. Just at that moment, Raymond Clark walked into the room and saw Roth talking to police by the box of All Wipes. He walks over to where they were talking and positioned his body between the officer and the box so that to block the view of the officer seeing the box and then rotated the box so the blood spatter was facing away from the officer. Now other people noticed this and FBI investigators that were helping on the case removed Clark from the room to speak with him and the box was positioned as it had been before it was photographed and seized as, ev as evidence. Clark was just asked some questions by the FBI investigators so they could focus on this box of all wipes. He's not being held on any charges so he's 
after he speaks with them, he's free to go. And he soon return, returns to the room and begins cleaning a drain under the sink. Now, this is the only sink in the room. And he's cleaning the drain with an SOS pad and a cleaning solution. However, the police officers there take notice of the fact that the drain appears to be already clean and didn't need any further cleaning. And I read somewhere else he did the same thing on some grooves in the floor. So police are starting to really get some questions about this this Raymond Clark guy. Now this isn't the first time that police had talked to Clark since Lee's disappearance. He had been talked to the day before on September 9th as part of a building-wide canvas to see if anyone had seen Lee. Clark told police that day that he was the last person to see Lee before she disappeared. So police are going to have some pretty compelling investigative feelings towards Clark being involved at this point. I mean, everything that he's done has been suspicious and not actions of somebody who clear, you know, doesn't have any idea of what's going on. So, and I, I don't know why this is. I'm looking at the dates because to me, a lot of this stuff should have been happening faster. And maybe it wasn't just because at first people were still had to question whether something actually happened to Lee or whether she just just decided to just walk away from everything but on september 12th so this is i guess four days after but really it's not reported till late on the 8th so three days after she's been missing crime scene investigators responded to the lab to process for further evidence during this processing they located locker rooms and in these locker rooms they located a set of work boots with what appeared to be blood spatter on them the boots had the labels ray c on the back of the boots a blue medical scrub top was also located that had what appeared to be a blood stain on it. The scrubs matched those in a laundry bag hanging from a peg, and that peg was labeled Ray. Now, police are going to obtain the video surveillance of the of the cameras on the building. I guess, from what it looked like, it was all external cameras, so they're able to see people. The cameras cover every single door, so they're able to see people come and go in and out of the doors, but they don't believe they're able to see anything inside the building. These cameras are going to show uh, going to show Lee arriving that morning, but never leaving the building. Raymond Clark is seen several times on the cameras, and when he arrives to work, he's wearing those blue scrubs, like the one they found with the blood stain on it, and he's later seen leaving diff wearing different clothing at 4 p.m. that afternoon. So now, this is going to be confirmation i guess to the police on the morning of the 13th that lee never left that building because no she somebody would have seen her come and go and now we're going to talk about this later but lee is pretty i would say distinguishable in the fact that she's about four foot ten and weighs about 90 pounds so you know she's the size of a middle schooler i guess or, or even a late elementary school kid she's not going to be the size of the of a typical person coming and going so you know if she's a five six five 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 six female they're going to have to watch a lot of people coming in and out of this building to see if if that's potentially lee and compare it to what she was last seen wearing that day and, and everything like that but when it's somebody who's either abnormally tall or abnormally short it's it's easy to rule out the large portion of the population that doesn't fall within that height range or size range and focus on on people who are and in this case they're not seeing anybody that could be 
Lee leaving the building. As they're continuing to search, they, on the 13th, they find a different locker room in the building, and investigators are going to notice the smell of a decomposing body coming from the locker room. I got a lot of this information off the actual search warrant affidavits for this case, and they're a little confusing. I don't know that they're lined up exactly as they were presented, or if they were, it's, it just, again, was a little bit confusing. It made it sound like when these investigators found this locker room, there's was it, 14 lockers in there and six of them are locked. And as they walk in the room, they're smelling what they know is the smell of decomposing uh, flesh. So I think in the search warrant, the way the affidavit was written, they wanted to get into those six locked lockers I talked about how, I didn't see the size of the lockers, but I talked about how small Lee was, and maybe these lockers are big enough to actually fit a human body inside them, and since they were locked, they had to get search warrants, because search warrants are basically your complete and utter, we're safe if we get a search warrant tool for investigators. You can have permission and consent to search certain areas in a building, but if it comes to trial and you get a judge that decides those lockers were locked, therefore the property inside was not able to be consented to be searched by campus officials, and you go ahead and cut off those locks and then open up the locker, there, there could be judges out there that see that as a violation of privacy over whoever had that stuff locked in the locker, and they're going to say you should have gotten a search warrant. And if you talk to any investigator who's been around long enough, these cases, I mean, they work on these things sometimes for days, weeks, months, years. So to take a few hours to go get a search warrant, it's worth it versus potentially blowing months long or years long investigations to get that one piece of evidence that can't be put into court because you got it illegally. So the way I read the search warrants was they got the search warrants because they believed the body was potentially in one of these locked lockers. Now, when they come back with a search warrant, they're going to actually they're going to come back with cadaver dogs as well. And I think they're hoping that the cadaver dogs would hit on one of these lockers, but the cadaver dogs actually go to this bathroom that's off this locker room and they hit on this access panel that's behind this toilet. And it's kind of described as a, like a mechanical panel or a plumbing access panel somewhere you, you can remove the panel so that you can do some plumbing work or electrical work behind the wall without having to cut a hole in the wall and repair the wall and this is where they're going to find Annie Lee's body in the search warrant and every and the arrest warrant and every affidavit I could find online all of the stuff about them finding the bodies redacted and other than the fact where they found it and some of the stuff they found with the body and I'm going to get into that in a little bit when we talk about the crime scene investigation itself. But I have some feelings about that, feelings why that is, but we'll, we'll get there eventually. So unfortunately, it was on September 13th, the day that she was supposed to get married, that her body was found. Stuffed into that small mechanical access place behind the toilet in the locker room, the investigators had identified the smell while in. The description of the body, as I said, was redacted in the affidavits but let's get into what I believe actually happened here. 
disclaimer here, this is all going to be speculation on my part based on the research and without having all of the knowledge. And this does not go to trial because the suspect is going to plea. So they aren't going to present a whole lot of evidence that hasn't already been sealed as a part of this case or, or at least not released. I'll speculate here, but from what I can tell, the only two people that were in that room that day were Clark and Lee. My guess is Clark somehow tries to make a pass at Lee, maybe make some advances on her, and she rejects his advances, which one of two things is going to happen. He's either going to get enraged at that point and attack her, or he's going to leave and build up anger and then come back after her because he's going to have multiple key card entries into that room and some of the other labs and we'll get into that later but it's hard to tell from his key card entries because he does enter i think it was at like 10 30 and then he enters at uh, like 10 40 something and then he's he's not entering any other rooms for 46 minutes so again i don't know if he made an advance on her she rejects him, he gets pissed off, goes somewhere else for 10 minutes, and then realizes he's going to come back and, and attack her. There also was some information out there in regards to a text message between Clark and Lee, and I didn't see anywhere where this was edited out of later news statements, but basically everybody pointed to this ABC News story saying that Clark had texted Lee to come to the lab because he needed to go over some cleaning procedures with her. Again, three or four articles referenced that, and I couldn't even find the original article that said where the source came from or, or where this information was from, and then it's never mentioned again in, in any of the articles. So I don't know if that was one reporter's attempt to try to break the case with either a false tip or information that didn't pan out to be true in the end but if that's the case then maybe it was more of a premeditated attack on lee or it could be that it was work related in the beginning but before we get into that let's talk about who was raymond clark so raymond clark was born january 28th 1985 from everything in the research i found he was known for being a good baseball player popular student and an overall nice kid who got along with just about everyone a reporter even asked one of his former teammates what they thought of his arrest, and they said they were shocked. And when that same reporter asked the teammate if Ray showed any anger or temper while playing sports, the teammate denied ever seeing Ray angry. However, some reporters found some of Ray's ex-girlfriends who came forward and said that while Clark was kind and sweet in the beginning, he turned into borderline abusive control freak after some time together. More than one girlfriend said Clark ordered her to stay away from other boys, told her who she could be friends with, told her when to stop talking when she talked too much. One former girlfriend said this control sometimes turned into physical abuse, and when she broke up with him, she had to get walks to her car for two weeks because she was afraid he would show up and attack her. It wasn't long after he started working at Yale that people started to notice how much of a control freak he was. According to some people, he would fly off the handle if someone didn't follow proper cleaning procedures and was known to get angry at work. And I talked about the article that said that it was possible that he called 
Lee over there to speak about cleaning procedures. So I think the reporter was trying to draw a connection between his control issues and his anger over these cleaning procedures and maybe that he attacked Lee out of anger in a workplace violence situation. And while there's not enough information out there to completely rule that out, some of the evidence we'll get into later, I think there's a different motive for the attack here. Now we'll go over the evidence first and see how it pertains to Clark as a suspect and what I believe happened. Police are going to state that only two key cards were active in the building at the time they believe Lee was killed. Clark and Lee were the only ones that had scanned into that room and when they looked back at Clark's prior scans it showed that a lot of the rooms that he was in the day of the murder like he scanned into those rooms five times 11 times I think a total of all his scans for that day were somewhere in the realm of 55 and on a normal day he might scan into one or two rooms at a time so clearly he was doing a lot of not normal activity on the day of the murder by going in and out of rooms constantly and that wasn't his typical mo and it hadn't been that way for he hadn't done anything like that before that they could tell now he did tell the police that he was the last person to see lee there's no evidence that lee ran off and this this is all as they're going through the investigation these are the things they're looking at like these are the things that point towards clark being the suspect and lee not having run away clark has a history of violence towards women He's seen on camera wearing different clothes to work and then are different clothes when he leaves work than what he wore there. And now some people might say, well, he's cleaning these cages, so it makes sense that he changes his work clothes. To me, it makes more sense that he would wear a pair of clothes to work, change at work into something that he can get dirty in and that the university probably launders for him some type of cleaning uniform like those scrubs. And then he would change into the same set of clothes that he wore to work when he left so the fact that and and if i was investigating this i would look to see other times that he arrived to work is this is this part of his normal pattern where he wears one outfit to work and leaves work in another outfit or was this the only day that he wore one outfit to work and a different outfit home and that's likely because his clothing that he wore to work that day got soiled in a way that has never happened before and he needed to wear different clothes out of his locker home it did mention that he failed a polygraph and we haven't talked about polygraphs yet i don't think they've come up in any of our cases the important thing to remember about polygraphs is a they're not a hundred percent conclusive people can beat polygraphs that are lying people can be overly anxious and fail polygraphs when they're telling the truth and it's for this reason that polygraphs can't be used, or the results of polygraphs can't be used in a court of law. So you cannot bring that evidence to a jury and say this person failed the polygraph. The only thing that polygraphs are is a tool for the investigators to see if they can use the results that, to sway somebody to either tell the truth if they think they're lying, or it might eliminate a suspect if the polygraph comes back as this as showing no signs of deception. So they're useful tools in the investigation process, but they're not going to be 
evidence that can be used in court. And finally, Clark had scratches on his arms, chest, and back. And again, he told the he told the police officers that noticed the scratch on his bicep that it was from the cat. I don't know if I think they found the rest of the scratches when they did an actual search warrant on him. And when you do a search warrant on a homicide suspect, you're going to take full body pictures of them without clothes on. That's going to show any potential uh, defensive style wounds that, uh, that their victim might have put on them, like scratches, bites, all that kind of stuff. So now they got all the circumstantial evidence, but they also eventually will have direct evidence. And this is what leads to his arrest. So they're eventually going to find semen on the underwear that Lee was wearing. Now they would say that that semen came back too degraded. It's possible that he may have, or somebody may have added cleaning solution to it to, to break up the DNA to the point that they couldn't compare it to him. But there was semen found at the crime scene that did match Clark. Now in this little crawl space area where they found Lee's body, this little maintenance access area, they're going to find a pen underneath her body. And that pen is going to have Lee's blood on it, but then it's going to have Clark's DNA on the pen itself. And then they're going to have all of the of his articles of clothing. They're going to have the blood spatter on them, and that blood is going to come back to matching Lee. So Clark's going to be arrested on September 17th of 2009, and he's charged with murder. He first appears in court in January of 2010, and he initially pled not guilty. However, on March 17th of 2011, Clark does plead guilty to the murder of Annie Lee. And by this time, he's also facing the charges of sexual assault on Lee, and he enters what's called an Alford plea on those charges. So an Alford plea is when a suspect admits defeat and says the, the prosecutors have enough information to find me guilty of this crime, but I'm not going to admit I did it. So it's it's a way of admitting guilt without admitting guilt, I guess. And so in this case, he does he pleads and admits guilt on the murder, but I guess he didn't want to be seen as a rapist, and so he's going to say, yeah, they have enough to, to say I raped her, but I didn't. I guess that's that's his route on that one. As a result of him pleading guilty, like I said, he we did not have the evidence presented in trial to paint the full picture of what happened. And no article out there and the affidavits themselves are a little light in terms of the details of this crime. And I don't know if that was to protect the victim against what happened to her or protect her family finding what what happened to her. But the one thing I hadn't brought up to this point is that her autopsy revealed her cause of death was strangulation. What got me a little curious was with the amount of cleanup that he was doing and the time it took him to clean up, there must have been a lot of blood. And, And then you enter all the blood spatter on the box of wipes on his clothing on his shoes and he's obviously concerned about cleaning up the floor and the fact that they kind of hid the details of of Annie Lee's body and my thought is that he may have dismembered her in one of the lab rooms and as morbid and gross as that sounds it's the only thing that really makes sense it's either that or there was more of a struggle than we can ever imagine 
and she hit her head on something because head wounds bleed a lot and the blood from that wound got all over the place but usually in order for there to be spatter there has to be impact or some type of force behind the blood itself and because her cause of death was suffocation and there's nothing mentioned in the autopsy report that she sustained you know heavy injuries to her body and again i didn't see the autopsy report the only thing that says is that that she died of or the autopsy report said she died of asphyxiation from suffocation so it's a lot of speculation here it just one of those things where it was a really weird case to research because there's a lot of information out there about her life what she was doing with school the investigation into her missing the five days that she was missing what people were doing how it captivated the country this bride is goes missing five days before her her, her date and she just kind of disappears into thin air and then her body's found and then there's and it's kind of weird because one of those cases where the investigation is almost done before her body is found a lot of times the investigation doesn't begin until the body is found so the case is almost all wrapped up within it's within 10 days of, of her even being reported missing clark is arrested so kind of as soon as he's arrested that media circus dies down to the point that there's not a lot of information now coming out about the case so it was a weird case to research and it's just my curiosity as to why the crime occurred in the first place and so i fall back on the idea that that clark made advances on lee she rejected him and he sexually assaulted her and either in the process of sexually assaulting her he either killed her on after the fact on purpose he killed her during the sexual assault i guess accidentally but sounds terrible because shouldn't yeah accidentally suffocate somebody to death but maybe he smothered her and i'm just again i'm just doing a lot of speculating here i don't like doing it i like having all the information in front of me but i spent a lot of time researching this case and the information out there is just it's very vague and and people are going to do the same thing i do they're going to speculate as to what actually happened here the only person who knows what happened that is still alive is Raymond Clark and he hasn't talked about it. Uh, he won't, he apologized for everything that he did, but because he did the plea deal and the plea deal didn't require a confession, which I, I kind of scratched my, I mean, it required a confession, but it didn't require him to t- say exactly what he did. And that's kind of the head scratcher here. Now, as a part of that plea deal, he's going to get sentenced to 44 years for the murder. And then he's going to get sentenced to 20 years for the sexual assault. But the, sex, the 20 years of the sexual assault is going to run concurrent to the 44 years for the murder. So he's going to do a maximum of 44 years in prison. And a lot of people were upset about this. And I was as well until I found out that Connecticut, and again, every state is so different with its laws. Connecticut, apparently, if you're convicted of murder or plead guilty to murder, your sentence is your sentence. There is no parole. Now, I don't know what level of murder that has to reach or if it's just any murder case. You do your full time. But Raymond Clark is serving his sentence in Cheshire Correction Institute and is scheduled for release on September 15th of 2053. And he will not have parole before then. So he still has 30 years left. And he's going to be 70 years old when he gets out of prison. So while 44 years 
in the grand scheme of, of murders seems like a short amount of time. It's actually probably one of the longer sentences, especially since we just did Sylvia Likens the other day. And what Gertrude did to Sylvia for months and months and months that led to her death, she was out after 20 years after the incident. And that was a quote-unquote life in prison sentence. So this is actually going to be longer than that, and twice as long as that, and rightfully so in terms of how much time he's spending behind prison for what he did. I'd like to see it longer. I'd like to see it the rest of his life in prison. That's what I believe that murder cases should always be is life without parole. But as it is, he's spending the majority of his life behind prison for what he or behind bars for what he did. Now Annie Lee was laid to rest in her home state of California and memorials were held there and in New York. The case had garnered so much national attention that the memorial service was broadcast on the internet. Here on this case is going to be Annie Lee. It's said that given the nature of the crime scene and the scratches she inflicted on Clark that she fought for her life. She was, some sites say 4'9", some sites say 4'11", so I'm going to say she was 4'10", and she she weighed less than 90 pounds. Clark was 5'9", and weighed twice as much as her at 190 pounds. So, despite being outweighed, outsized, she put up quite a fight. Unfortunately, it just wasn't enough to keep her alive. But the struggle that she put up did help clue investigators to her killer and allowed her to be a voice after her death. So again, this is one of those cases where it's more about the crime scene and the investigation. There is story out there, but even then, there's a lot of details that are lacking for me to do a proper analysis of the case. However, it was interesting to see how the entire investigation came together. I think they put together a very solid case. I think had it gone to trial, he likely would have gotten life in prison without parole if he was found guilty by a jury. Unfortunately, it was smart on his part to take that plea of 44 years, but because there's no trial, we're not getting all the information we're not even getting the speculation by the prosecution because that's a lot of times what the prosecutor's job is to do is to explain to the jury what happened based on the evidence. And again, since we don't have all the evidence, we can't officially say what happened. I can just, based on the little evidence that we were able to see in the search affidavits and stuff, I think we put together probably the most likely scenario of what happened. Again, thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. Thanks everyone for listening. Have a great day. Talk to you later. Bye.